Welcome to Social Sessions. I'm joined today with an amazing author, poet, playwriter, and he's also the programme leader for the Master's Degree in Television Screenwriting. He has fantastic Scottish charisma and an empathetic and compassionate personality. He has written fictional crime stories for television programmes such as Taggart and has been involved in countless writing for radio and TV. It is an honour to introduce Chris Dolan. So how are you doing, Chris? Uh, I'm grand. I don't know how that guy's doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he sounds amazing. Uh, wouldn't mind meeting him at some point. No, thanks very much for that. And I'm grand. Thanks for being. It's great to be, to be in talking about this with you. No, it's great mm. to have you on. Um, so I'm just going to kind of take you back to your own kind of childhood, um, growing up in Glasgow and stuff. Um, so how was your own kind of? I would say unremarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think so. You know, well, we'll talk about this in a bit more detail later on, but one of the things you really, really notice walking into a prison, particularly someone like me, is you're walking into uh, a, a front line of the class war. Um, I grew up, uh, my, my family's from Mary Hill, uh, my mother's Donegal, uh, and a, a first uh, language Irish speaker, um, and came over here. I went to London first of all, lied about her age, and came over to London to become a nurse. And quite interestingly, actually, she ended up in Scotland because, I don't know if you ever heard of the Arundora Star, no, it was a ship. Uh, they were they were they were shipping out. Um, uh, come, they're not called prisoners of war, but uh, people in, in 1941, uh, around about then, uh, basically Germans and Italians who lived in Britain. Right during the war, fearful that they might be in some way spies or whatever, which is ridiculous. Most uh-huh. of them run from the fascist regimes, but anyway, a lot of them were Jews, Aye. German Jews, and I'll bet they round up all these people to ship them off to Canada. And the boat got torpedoed by a German U-boat just off Arran. Wow. Uh, and I can't remember, 350-odd people died. Uh, I think I do know what you're talking oh, about. Oh, it's an amazing story, you know, really tragic. Um, and a lot of the Italian and German families in, in, in Glasgow were very affected by it. And the, the survivors were taken to Greenock uh, Hospital and they, they ran short of nurses. So they brought uh, nurses up from London just in time because my mum had just about to be discovered in London that she had lied about her age and about right. her nursing qualification offer. So she got out, <laughs> got to Greenock, met my dad. Um, so they, they were, you know, pretty kind of fairly hard. She from a very, very uh, uh, kind of rural uh, Irish family. Uh, my, my dad's family were Glasgow, Mary Hill, weren't right. class. But they did quite well for themselves, you know. Uh, so time I was born, uh, most of my family were brother born. I'm, I'm the last of a of a big family. Uh, most of my my uh, brothers and sisters were born in uh, Mary Hill or or Particle. Uh, I, I was born in uh, Clarence Drive, so they always slagged me off as being uh, as being the, the, the snobby one of the family. <laughs> uh, having said that, my dad took very very ill, and although we actually lived in a, in a nice big tenement, um, there, there wasn't an awful lot of money. Um, and I went to school in East End because the whole family had always gone to school in East End. Um, so I kind of an odd upbringing. And uh, in some ways, it was, it was kind of middle class in some ways. And in other ways, it wasn't at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a very Glasgow experience. But to be honest, you know, um, I don't think, I talk to other people's life stories and the things they witnessed as, as young people. I think I was kind of fairly well protected from a lot of it. Um, so my, my childhood was a fairly ordinary, straightforward kind of, up, uh, upper working class, a lower middle class kind of Glasgow family um, without an awful lot of drama in it. Aye. Everybody was nice. still going very well with all my family. We're all still pretty close and stuff like that. But I kind of, kind of an unremarkable upbringing, you know. So obviously Glasgow's got that kind of, um, 
it's got that kind of thing about it where it's it, a lot of people were brought up in the in the, the north end and seen a lot of kind of exposed to a lot of violence stuff so it's quite it's actually quite good that you were kind of bubbled at that um but I think it was at St Mungo's you went because my dad went to St Mungo's I remember seeing go to St Mungo's it was an all boys school was that right? all boys school that's an interesting story too I mean a lot of people think that it was like St Aloysius that it was like a private school of some sort it wasn't it ever um, it was an early it was an early uh, experiment in uh, uh, comprehensive education uh, so it was about Catholic boys in East End and the, the original idea so it's very connected with Celtic Football Aye. Club and all that. So East End of Glasgow and Brother Wilfred and all these people are all kind of roughly connected at the same time as St Mungo's Academy. And the idea was to take East End boys and bring in West End and people from other places who were kind of up the cultural level right. of the East End boys. Right. By the time I got there, precisely the opposite was happening. <laughs> you were East <laughs> we, 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 were we were brought right back down again. Uh, in a way, I, th I thought, uh, when I was there, um, uh, later on it became better against my brother-in-law, actually ended up being the head teacher of it many years later. And my brothers and my father had good memories of it. Uh, when I was there, it was a terrible school. And that's why I did first encounter violence. Uh, not so much because it was in the East End. Aye. But because it's very, very badly run school, I mean, it was a really badly run school. It was mental. Aye. The whole experience was mental. I haven't said that. I've made, I still see four or five of my closest mates that I first met when I was 12 years Aye. old, and that's been a relationship that's lasted 50 years, you know. So I'm always very thankful to the Mungo. Uh, I made a lot of contacts. I now know my city better because there's kids from all over the city, and particularly from the East End. Aye. Uh, and I got to know it really, really well, you know. So probably in a way, maybe gave you a wee bit kind of more made you more a wee bit more streetwise and stuff like that as well like and gave you a wee that kind of compassionate seen maybe seen other other children that maybe didn't have what you had and stuff Chris I'm sure you wouldn't maybe talking about it so one of my closest mates to this day um, so you're right I think I think I was a bit of an innocent you know I went to St Peter's Partick and it's a mix of kids but one of the things I like about Glasgow is you can't walk in any direction for more than five minutes without changing class several times. Totally. You, know? uh, you can live in London and never ever see in the middle class London, never see a working class person and vice versa. Aye. But that's you can't. Eh? No, uh, no. You'd have to be blindfolded all the time. Um, but I think I was probably still relatively uh, kind of innocent. And I met my mate Mick and uh, his mother had just died. Um, uh, just before, I, I never knew her. I mean, literally months before uh, I could have got to know him in first year school. Um, his dad had been a street fighter right uh, and had died years before that so he was in Hag Hill uh, right. and I used to go up to his house uh, in Hag Hill which back then was a byword for you know aye, aye. Kind of poverty and, and violence I did get jumped a few times got a mixed place aye. you know I think you get jumped in the street and and some guy says to you who are you going to see? <laughs> and it's a 50 50 chance they like him. <laughs> Luckily, both times I got jumped, I went, Mick Morton. No, my God's fine on you, go, Big Man. Um, so I go off lucky. But then I go in this, you know, really, really small little house and not a great street. And it's one of the best houses to this day. Even about that house. So the, there was no mum, no dad, a big family of about eight of them. The older brothers basically played the roles of mother and father. Aye. They were great musicians. Uh, so you go in there and you're playing guitars all night. They'd introduce me to music I would never heard otherwise. So that whole kind of idea of the East End or poorer areas being somehow or other culturally less, I knew from the age of 12, that's just not true. This is the most culturally exciting place I've ever been. Aye. And this is a family who were in one of the worst areas in Glasgow, 
came out of, you know, short lifespans of their parents, uh, real poverty and stuff like that, and they were amazing people. Right. Uh, so that was a great education for me to realise that, and another mate of mine, Rokese, I think we, we, we talked this before, Sean, our mate in Rokese, and we story about him. And again, you know, <laughs> there's this kind of, there's a kind of a, a, an attitude that somehow you're walking in some kind of cultural desert. <laughs> Total opposite is true. You know, again, Aye. Danny's family were amazing. So I found actually that everybody I met once I went to Mungo, I hated the school, Aye. but everyone I met, I thought were amazing people, you know, uh, and really exciting to know. And they also kind of politicised me in a way that before I just kind of didn't think of much, but you suddenly realise, hang on a minute, you know, why is that street full of great big houses and fancy cars and the street over there, isn't it? How does that happen, you know? And you begin to become more and more politicised and realise what I'm at. No, I totally get it. And I think I agree with you so much. And probably schools, I mean, you'll get Amphicumberland also, there probably will be a kind of mixture of that kind of, um, you will get a mixture of classes in there as well. But they're probably in Glasgow, they're, they're, that's missing now, I think. there's. I think if you've got money, you're kind of at private school or you're at a kind of better school and people are buying postcodes and stuff because of the kind of catchment areas and stuff. So you're kind of ended up with a lot of people that don't see that that side and they kind of grow up with the kind of, well, as for a want a better word, the silver spoon in their mouth into it and it's kind of, they don't get to. So it's probably, um, as you say, it's gave you a kind of totally different culture. I, I think you're dead right the way society, but basically the injustices and inequalities have got bigger and bigger and wider and wider. I think you're right. So again, you know, I'm now 66, that's from yesterday. Um, oh, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> can you believe it? Um, but I think I look at social change exactly what you're talking about. It was less polarised. So although my mum and dad had done quite well by the time I came along and I was essentially in a middle class area, my brothers, my, my, my uncles and extended family were unskilled labourers in, in, in the Clydeside. Um, there just wasn't that same separation, you know. The, the, the classes, you know, intermingled a lot. Aye. And I think you're right. I think more and more middle class has become very, very middle class. And maybe now actually you can do that thing. You can live your entire life in Bear's Den and work in the city centre and never see the problems uh, in the north of the city and east of the city and elsewhere in the city because you can live in bubbles far more. Definitely. Back when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you couldn't live in bubbles. No. Uh, um, yeah, I think Glasgow is a more intermingled city than it is now. I think... Um I mean, a lot of people would blame drugs, but, but, but alcohol's always been a big culture in Glasgow. So it's like, I always remember kind of going up to my grannies and stuff like that. And it was always for like the game, the football games and stuff like that. And um, you would go up and it was like, like big loads and loads of your family would be there. That, that, that doesn't happen now. Right. Um, you don't get that. There's that, I don't know if it's a sense of community that's went away or, um, but the, the era that we're in, it's kind of, you don't get that let's all go to the, the house and watch the game and get a drink. And I'm not like obviously advertising for drink and all that because obviously a lot of people have got problems with it and stuff like that. But um, it is a big culture in, in, in Scotland. I think those things have gone. I mean, to some extent, partly it was not everybody had a telly. So you end up going to the one house that <laughs> had a telly in the family or whatever. So you're big. But you're right, our family used to get together all the time, both sides, my mum's and my dad's side of it. And there's a big family and neighbours. Is that where you grew up? You weren't quite sure who your uncles actually were. Aye. You know, just over just guys you knew as Uncle Jim, you know. And you turned it later on, you'd actually nothing to do with you. Family wise, you know. Just just like I don't know, I dealt about a neighbour or a pal of your dad's or whatever. And you're right, I remember going to games uh with, you know, two or three families going together. Aye. New Year, 
you know, everybody came round to one house. Uh, and I don't know if your family did it, but again, that thing, uh, I think a lot of people might be surprised, culturally it's a lot richer than you think. So most families that I knew, regardless of where they came from, uh, at birthdays and Christmas and New Year and whatever holidays and stuff like that, they'd also have essentially a Kaylee. Definitely. Did you do that? You sang a song. Somebody sang a song parties, or did a poem or told a joke or whatever. So Karaoke and I remember. And no, it's like um, even when you go to Christmas and stuff like that, it's like um, during the day. Mm. Um, people, which is fine, like, like during the day, but it'll be like maybe for 12 to 5 yeah. and stuff. Whereas I remember um, before I went to prison, like maybe being 16 year old and it was like the full family and that was... That I remember my dad and that saying that was at diner and that was like big party still and um, so I can just imagine what they were like when Aye. when they were in like the seventies and eighties. Do you know what I mean? And as you said, you know, it's a mixed blessing in a lot of ways, but there's, there's lots of drink around, you know. Um, and maybe that culture to some extent has changed, and there's probably some benefits out of that. But I think you're right. I think it's a kind of a less of that family community. Uh, I know it's a less. So I now live in a street where all the neighbours know each other and we like each other. But you wouldn't even know each other's houses. No. Whereas we lived there close. Aye. You're not, I mean, all the, the Waynes, the close, just didn't know each other's in the back green. That's what he did. And you hung about the back green and, you know, big groups of children, a classic thing. There was still around, you're a lot younger than me. Uh, that, and people think it's kind of a myth. It's not, it's true that you go out on a Saturday morning and get your breakfast half past nine and your 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 mother would say, make sure you're home in time for your tea at half past five. You just went. You know? <laughs> yeah, <is> nobody <laughs> nobody was watching you. Today. You did get in, you did get into some uh, naughty stuff. Uh, <laughs> but by and large, you played football in the park for hours. Aye. Uh, but big crowds of big crowds of wins. You know, Aye. you knew every win in your neighbourhood. No, uh, and I'm not sure that happens anymore. No, I think um, with the cost of living and stuff like that. Um, Obviously, it's a theme that's been running on these podcasts. We've been talking about it. Um, there does definitely seem to be uh, the kids are going back out on the street, but not necessarily for a good thing. It seems to be the kind of gang culture creeping back in a wee bit again, which is horrible because it did kind of go for a wee while. Um, I don't know if that was down to like social media, gaming, whatever, but, but I think it was Andy McLaren that says to me, like, you know, the, the families know the first thing that's going to go is the Wi Fi. Um, rather than being able to feed and, and, and put, produce, produce food for the family and stuff, you're going to put off the Wi-Fi, whatever, get rid of the big telly, the, yeah. the PS5 will go, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the kids are kind of going back out onto the street and that, I can you can just see it creeping back in and I just hope, I hope that there's a lot of work getting done in the background I hope that they can kind of try and rein it back in. Um, I was never really aware growing up of gang culture. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it clearly was around because I then later on, right, not that much later on, but 10 years later, I end up in East House as a writer in residence and gang culture was a major part of that. And what happened to it as well was a was a major story. I wasn't particularly aware of it, even because the, the, the Mungo's in Duke Street and then you move up to the Barony, uh, which, is in, which is in Townhead. And you saw like signs on walls and stuff, but aye. even me and my mates, and some of my mates were mental by then. They probably were a bit members of gangs, but I wasn't particularly aware of it. Um, it wasn't such a big thing. It was more actually uh, Catholic boys throwing stones at Protestant boys who threw stones aye. back and all that kind of stuff, uh, rather than uh, gang culture. Uh, so, yeah, in a way, I, 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 I want to publicise this anywhere I can. I've, I read a book last year by, let me guess, like Graham Armstrong. Aye. Young team. Aye. That that age group now, Aye. and very much of a gang culture. It's essentially Airdrie. I think it doesn't actually name where it Aye. is, but it's around about Airdrie area. 
And it is that some of it's appalling, the violence is appalling, it's terrifying, but also there is some kind of sense of community between these I guys. Oh, you know? I. Um, which in a way is a weird thing about you going, this is terrible, but actually that's great. I. Um, so yeah, it's always been complex, I think. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, obviously when you look at some of the guys, um, I mean, obviously when I, when I was younger, we kind of kicked about the streets and stuff. And I mean, it, you went to Glasgow, it was a different ball game and we weren't you would, you would, you. I, I mean, I don't know. You, you were maybe classed as a gang if you just hung about the streets with your friends and that, and you were for an, for an area. And as you said, if you if you happen to go into another area for a party, people, they would say, "Oh, like." So I don't know if you would call that a gang. Do you know what I mean? But that certainly happened when I was younger. Do you know what I mean? And then um, you hit an age and you all play football together and you all start talking. You realise they're all the same. Do you aye, know what I mean? Like aye. guys that you you think you don't like, you're like. He's actually all right, right. him, so he's yeah. actually brand new. Even though he's from that area. I feel that area. <laughs> I thought they were horrible. Yeah, yeah. They were all terrible, <laughs> um, as if a bridge made a difference. Um, but so, obviously, I know you're kind of passionate about crime and stuff, Chris. So where did that come from? Where did the kind of um, writing and all your kind of stuff like that? And a lot of ways from what I read, and I'm just, uh, uh, rather than lived experience. Although, again, you do, you, you can't live in a city like Glasgow without being aware of it, you know. So I grew up at the time of uh, Bible John and, uh, who's you call him? He's a great killer, a uh, big killer, great killer. John uh, Boyle. Uh, John Boyle was around at the time when I was growing up as well. Um, I'll come back to him in a minute. Uh, anyway, there's a number of kind of famous... Nielsen, De- Dennis Nielsen. No, again, no, that's no, a bit no, later. Was a bit later uh, right. It's the 50s, I'm talking about, so it was kind of, he, was a, he was a big bogeyman. Oh, I know, I know what you're talking about. I am just going. I know. Um, uh, but anyway, so the, the, all that was around. So, Mal Compton played them, didn't he? Yes. Aye, I know. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, so the, anyway. there's these big cases around and you're aware of it. And so I, I suppose you're always kind of, you know, it's there it's in the back of your head all the time. But also for me, I mean, for writing at all, uh, I was I was a sick kid. I had, I had uh, what was called back then bronchitis. I think now it would be called asthma. Uh, and it was quite interesting. Quite a lot of writers were sick kids. So I was off school a lot. Aye. I'm pretty sure now they wouldn't keep you off school for asthma, but back then they did. Uh, so he'd be kept off school, which I hated, by the way, even though I didn't like the Mungo much, I still didn't like uh, he's stuck in the house. Um, but the one thing I did do was I read endlessly. That's bored. So I, I read endlessly. So my my sisters were given the job of bringing me a new book from the library virtually every single day. Um, and quite early on, I realised I quite liked crime fiction uh, because it's just got a certain you know, pace and interest to it. But it's also, you know, good crime fiction is is, is about people uh, and it's about uh, how people end up and where they are and how they end up by the committing or being the victims of crimes. So I found all that, you know, humanly really interesting. So I read a lot of crime and I liked a lot of stuff on telly and I watched movies on Sunday afternoons uh, with the family, which were, I loved the, I still love the old uh, Film noir movies and the Humphrey Bogart and all that ah, stuff, yeah. you know, and the, 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 the detective <laughs> and I'm like, I love all that stuff and they all look dead cool. Um, so I think it was a mix of all that, a mix of a lived experience of being in a place like Glasgow, um, and also just what I'm what I'm reading and what I'm seeing on screens. I just I just always felt uh, a real interest in, in in crime drama of any sort. Aye. So obviously. Um You've wrote for like Tag Up, um, you've wrote for like different crime. How does that come about? How do you kind of, um, because it's obviously interesting, you watch these these things and you watch Tag Up and sometimes they're like bang on the money where you get, you go like, how does producers know about that? And how, do, so how does that kind of come about? 
I mean, I ended up doing uh, crime writing. I'd always kind of wanted to, but it wasn't where I started off. I started off writing, uh, I mean, I, I was working and I tried my hand at a wee play and it did really well. I thought, oh, nah, maybe, maybe I'm a better writer than I realised. Wow. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm Willie Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, so I jacked my job. Aye. And in two years with nothing, I thought, no, I'm not Willie Shakespeare. <laughs> um, so I'd done other kind of writing before then, I'd written a couple of novels, a bit kind of like the novels which are very kind of around at that time. So a bit like, James Kellman, um, the early Irvin Welsh and that kind of stuff. So I wrote a couple of, a collection of short stories, a novel called Ascension Day, which is about Glasgow and about, Aye. and very much about within two streets. Uh, but there's one, there's one street title which I kind of wrote about in this book, uh, Ascension Day. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing street, actually. It's in, it's the back of Bear's Den and the back of Drumchapel. Aye. And you walk down the street and on that side of the road, there are, I mean, Two million pound houses. Aye. You know, unbelievable, you know? And on that side of the street, it's on the worst poverty in Europe. Aye. I mean, literally right next to each other. What always amazed me was, uh, how come not all the windows are tanned? Because that they weren't, you know? So actually, those two communities were living, I think they just lived back to back. They just didn't even notice each other, you know? They just looked the opposite way. Very so I'll go back to the writing. Um, so but my, my first book's about that, kind of more kind of just general stories about lives, which did involve crime. Um but then Tiger was, I'd done television, my, my first break in television was Take the High Road. Take the High Road. Which, uh, which I became my mum's easily favourite song. <laughs> um, yeah. If she, she could have said to me, see if that guy Scorsese phones you and says, come over and you're done doing it, son, you've got the best job in the world, High Road. She loved High Road and I was writing for I it. I think everybody, Mag and Annie loved Take the High Road. Uh, everybody, so I was, and then round about the, the shops around before we lived, I was a golden boy. So, That's Crystal, he, he, he writes Take the High Road. I was like... But then, by sheer chance, um, it fell to me. So you don't you don't select what script you get to write in, in a soap. You're doing Tiger, but not in a, not in a, not in a soap. You're just given that you're doing episode forty three, and episode forty three happened to be the first lesbian kiss in High Road. So I went from hero to zero like that. I said, "My my mother never spoke to me for about six months." Wow. You've ruined my show. And, and all the wee ladies are going, oh, they're going to go, oh, turn their back on me. You know? You've got a legend these days, I know. No, it's a big <laughs> thing. No. Uh, by then I was, oh, man. Uh, so I, I started writing for uh, Take the High Road. I did some other television stuff. I did some documentary stuff as well. And then I got a chance to write Tiger. Um, so I found that interesting. I didn't know how it worked. You know? Aye. I think Tiger now is very old-fashioned. Uh, watching it, I still enjoy them, but they're very old-fashioned. Um, but the time they were good. Sadly for me, it was towards the end of Tigers. I only got right in four of them. Um, but uh, I saw, I got a phone call. Would you like to write a Tiger? I went, oh, absolutely. Um, so you're going for a meeting. And they say, right, what are you going to write? Well, what's the story? And, <laughs> and I start to say, oh, right, this guy killed this guy and stuff. Like, no, 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 no. They weren't interested in that. What they wanted, and the way it worked for Tiger anyway, and I think it was pretty kind of constant for these series of, of crime things, is they wanted a world. Right. What's the world you're going to put this in? And that's the first thing you want. You're going to put it in the world of football teams, in the world of uh, uh, travelling people, in the world of opera singers. And where, where are you going to put this crime? You know, who kills who in a way is kind of secondary to that. What we want to see is the world. You know. Right. So I happened to be writing someone else at that time, and I came up with the idea of corrupt landlords, particularly in the north of Glasgow. There's a lot of stuff going on uh, in the north of Glasgow where there were. They were just simply concreting over really, really bad uh, chemical uh, waste that had been dumped in Sight Hill. Uh, and I've been kind of looking into this. So I said, how about 
corrupt lawyers and corrupt uh, corrupt estate agents and builders lying to people and then people getting incredibly sick about you know because these because it was actually happening say hill uh, and then who knows who and who knows the, the bad guy did it all and all that stuff and they went that's it that's brilliant you know so it was it was more about which i think quite interesting because in a sense in really good crime drama it doesn't really matter who kills who in a way it's about that world Aye. it's about how do people exist in a place like this Aye. and and why does it drive them to extremes Aye. at extremes of greed Mm-hmm. Um, or extremes of uh, wanting vengeance or wanting to stop things. Um, so in a way, crime drama done well is, is always very moral. It's looking at, well, here's a moral problem, you know? So what do people do, you know? Now, some do people, people might do it through... Emotionally, like, um, like emotionally to exactly. die dilemmas How do you survive stuff? it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then what do you do about it? Now, if you know you live in an area where the, the air is killing your children... Because they've 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 concreted over deadly chemicals which are seeping back in through the water and everywhere else. What do you do about that? And if the authorities aren't going to do anything about it, then you do something yourself. I know. And then you got a crime story. Aye. Yeah, you know, but it's still based on and, and the better ones are always based on some genuine kind of moral and emotional and personal need. Aye. Rather than just bang bang. Yeah. I know you've got to touch um to, get, to kind of get any any kind of attraction on any kind of any kind of platform, you've always got to kind of see that. Mo- you've got to, you've got to, it's raw emotion. Is um, you can't kind of you can't like buy it. You can't you can't play it. It's, that's how you get the best actors in the world. Do you know what I mean? Because they can play that emotional and and, and get you to feel their pain or feel whatever it is you're. And if it's no real, if the writer hasn't written it and it's no real, aye. I mean, in a way, nothing's real in fiction because it's all no, a but... lie, but the best fiction is very real. I once did a thing, apropos of this, but I once did a thing a few years ago. I was working at the university, as you mentioned, uh, which I now stopped teaching, by, by the way, but I, I, helped fund, I helped start the found the whole uh, MATV thing. Aye. But uh, at one point I thought, I wonder if I should start doing uh, a, a PhD because a lot of people did it in there. I decided it wasn't for me, I'd rather write my own stuff. But anyway, I started it. And I had this idea. I had written a television documentary about um, indentured, Scottish indentured workers being sent to the Caribbean during the time of slavery and they're being essentially, in very, very many ways, slaves themselves. I mean, they weren't slaves because they weren't owned, but their their lives were terrible, absolutely terrible. They are treated appallingly. A lot of them died very, very young and stuff like that. So I'd, I'd done a television thing on this, but I also wrote a novel where I made up a central character entirely as about a girl who comes across from the, from from Scotland to the Caribbean uh, for a new theatre that's been built and then she experiences all the problems over there. Nothing in that in that uh, story was actually true. Aye. But my, my argument was uh, there's actually more truth in the fiction than there is in the documentary series. Because the documentary series also had to kind of have a beginning, a middle, an end. You had to kind of treat the information you got. So in a way, you're always telling, even historians, you know, you'll get a history of... Glasgow working class in the 1950s and it looked very Aye. different from a history than Glasgow working class in the 2010s oh, because everything's interpretable mm-hmm. so I think actually great fiction is in a very very true sense at least as true if not truer Aye. Uh, you're trying to get into what made how do people actually feel to be you know poor indentured workers in the 1830s in a foreign country when they're dying of plagues and getting bit by mosquitoes and no money and stuff like that uh, how does that feel rather than just saying this is what happened? And good crime drama does that too. What does it feel like to be the guy who, because he's got a habit, 
ends up going one step too far right. and end up killing somebody, which he had no intention of doing. He wasn't a bad guy in that sense at all. What's it like to be that guy? Uh-huh. Do you think that kind of um, plants a seed that kind of compassion and empathy whilst, whilst you're writing? Um, and obviously you're trying to feel that character, try to be that character while you're writing. Do, do you think that builds a kind of like plants a seeds of kind of empathy, compassion, and seeing it for the kind of different points of view? I bloom and hope so, Sean. Otherwise, what's the point in any art? You know, because I, I do think that's what all good art does is it makes you see. I, I remember once hearing a great definition. Uh, I can't remember who was some famous psychologist. It might have been R.D. Lang, somebody, some psychologist, whatever, saying that. Basically, consciousness is like one of those uh, black boxes in aeroplanes. You, you cannot get into them. They're completely sealed. Uh-huh. So nobody can ever get into your head to know what it's like to be Sean Toll. Know your wife, know your son, know your mommy. Nobody knows what uh-huh. it's like to be you. And you have no idea what it's like to be me or your son or your... We try and tell each other things, uh-huh. but we can never get inside each other's heads. Not really. Uh, and that's just we're all alone. And what good art does, what good stories does, is it gives you just that instant to try and be inside Sean Toll's head or inside an, a, an indenture worker in the Caribbean in the 1830s or inside uh, a guy who murdered somebody accidentally's head. What's Aye. it like to be them? And I think that's what all great writing does. And crime can do it really, really well, just to give you an inkling before you make judgments. Hi. Listen, this is what it's like, you know? Um, so. Make your judgments now after Aye. you've experienced some kind of idea of what it's like to be somebody else. I think that's a it's a great way to put it. Um and I think there's the way that you try and get you can, you need to you need to kinda of broaden your horizon when you're talking about any kind of stuff. And I think if you don't have empathy and compassion, the societal kind of norms go downhill because you become accustomed to a set of rules that and morals that maybe don't are they going to benefit society? Um, if you look down on people, you think they're better than people or whatever, you, you think that person's a right-off and you shouldn't have... You, you're never going to be able to kind of heal. The, um, society's, a, to me, is not in a great position at uh, this day and age. I mean, I think we're living through... Me getting me a lot older than you, and I think we thought in the 70s, uh, particularly the 70s, we thought, actually, we're, we're really getting places now in a whole number of ways I now look at and it's... I remember another writer once said to me, a much older writer than me, uh, said, everything that I've ever fought for has been defeated. And everything I've fought against has won. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad time these days. Just look at what's happening with immigrants and stuff like that. Going, where did this inhumanity come from? No. Uh, I find it unbelievable. I find we're living in a more inhumane time than I was when I was growing up in the 60s, 70s. Inhumane in its own way. But you're dead right without any kind of empathy. You're never going to, apart from else, you're never going to fix anything, you know? If all where you're going to say is th- these guys down there are bad guys and I hate them, Aye. you're never going to solve that problem, you know? Um, where, where, where do you think that lies, Chris? Because obviously you can blame the media and people going about the Daily Record and people going about this, like the Sun and, and stuff like that. And, and they're, they're, to a degree, they're just doing their job and they're doing what sells papers, do you know what I mean? And I'm not saying it's... Um, I don't. I don't read them. I don't uh, agree with a lot of the stuff. I think there's a lot of lies and stuff told that don't need to be told. The sensationalized stuff, um, but I don't think it's just that. I don't think it's you. You can just blame the media. Um, I think politicians have got to take blame in the way that if we we spoke about this before on 
different on different levels. I've spoke to different people. You, if you catch a politician on his own, he'll tell you it's not working. But he's not willing to stick his neck out because the votes don't don't come. So I don't. Obviously, it's a very very hard question. But where do you, where do you think where do you think it comes for that kind of that where that inhumane? Where do you think it's coming for? I think you put your finger on a bit earlier on actually that increasing polarization between the classes and people hanging on to what they've got um, and yeah, and uh, very selfishly. Um, so I think there's been a, an, an increase in kind of general... T- I mean, I come from a, a particular political back, uh, um, backstory or mm-hmm. uh, backdrop in that uh, uh, I do think capitalism for the vast majority of people doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, money dictates everything. Totally. So you're going to increase that, as has always happened, particularly as capitalists get more and more capitalists since the neoliberals in the 1990s and all that stuff going all the way through, is the market decides everything. So the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. And and what always amazes me is when people are surprised when the poor then uh, turn around and, and, and bite you and go and steal wow. your car. And well, they're going to do that because if you're going to consistently have a completely divided society, you're always at risk. Mm-hmm. You know, so actually, it makes an awful lot more sense just to have a system that shares these out. Mm-hmm. You know? And the other thing, the, 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 my, my mates was growing up, and I, I'm exactly the same experience working in Barlini. It's it, you're not dividing say over people with uh, with talent and ability and and motivation. Mm-hmm. All these people get a huge amount of motivation and talent and ability, but you know, people with less motivation and talent and ability hang on to the power and the money and stop other people from getting through. And I just think that. We've, we've, the whole society has gone wildly to the right wing. Um, uh, I've got so much anger against the Labour Party because the things they should have done over the last 40 years, they didn't do. They didn't help areas like Battlefield or Easterhouse or they didn't. I think yeah. a lot of people have um, got that view now and it seems to be a, a theme again that's running through the podcast, Chris, is a lot of people are kind of disappointed with the SNP, disappointed with the, the, the Labour Party, Um so much potential. Uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn was probably the last hope that died that I, that I could see when, when that when that never happened, and I seen the way they they went for him. Everybody, um, aye, mainly his own party, aye, and then the left wing papers like the Guardian, I know, got the boot in on aye. a daily basis. I mean, the minute somebody who's genuinely radical, and by the way, in nineteen seventies terms. Corbyn wasn't saying anything that was the kind of normal in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Well, having a nationalised train service. Well, most countries in Europe have a nationalised train service. They're talking about to be some mad radical about having a nationalised train service, have a reasonable, cheap train so people can get about the place. They got the boot in from the beginning. Yeah, you're right. I would have, uh, I was very much uh, pro-Scottish independence. Not for any particular cultural reasons. I just mm-hmm. felt Westminster, it'll never, ever happen. We've got a s- slight chance of just having a more egalitarian society and fairer society in Scotland. Aye. But I would have, I would have jumped right back into Labour Party again. Mm-hmm. Had Corbyn won. Um, Corbyn had his faults, by the way. I know. Uh, I wasn't actually that mad on the guy himself. Aye. I thought he was a bit dull, to be honest. No, that yeah. he lacked charisma. He did. He did uh, lack charisma. He definitely did. But his ideas... Far from being radical, we're just sensible. I know. Huh? There was nothing he was saying that was particularly radical. No. So, yeah, that's, that was a great sign to, to show you just how much the system will protect itself all the time, including the Labour Party itself and the left-leaning press. Everybody got the boot into Corbyn. I know. Well, look at you look, you look at Westminster now and you look at um, 
what's happening down there. And obviously, I don't, I really don't read the media as much anywhere. I kind of, I watch YouTube and I watch different things. I watch uh, my own kind of stuff. But um, now and again, I'll see things about like Boris Johnson, and I'll see things about like uh, Rishi Sunak, and you'll see things in. Um, and you're going, and I'll, I, the, the guy that gets to me in the maze is Jacob Rees-Mogg, the way he goes on about, like, as if he knows how to work, like, I know working class people, and I know this, and you're like, it's it's actually insulting, oh. do you know what I mean? It really is insulting. Um, but I think, uh, I think you're right, I think the division, and I think which is sad is that the more it's dividing, the more working class people don't care. They go, it's no point in voting. Absolutely. And it's a, this is why, I mean, there's a lot more working class than there is of them. Absolutely. And they they win the votes. And it's because we can't be bored. We go, what's the point? We've, we've been beaten down that much yeah. that you go, what's the point? point? There's no point in voting. They're all the same. Um, and even more than that, I think what happens is if you don't give people who the, the system works against, which as you say, is a majority, um, if you don't give them an, an alternative, they'll 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 go somewhere. Aye. So that crumbling of the, the the red wall into the blue wall. So suddenly, people in Sunderland, I one know. of the poorest areas in uh, in Britain, in the northwest and the south, and, and less so, but parts of Scotland too, suddenly start voting conservative, and also coming out against Europe, which has actually helped them quite a lot. Well, if the system isn't treating them well, they'll try anything. I know. Why wouldn't you say well? I know. We've been voting Labour for 50, 60, 70 years. It's done nothing for us. So well, why not then vote Donald Trump? I know. Why not then, and it could get really dangerous, why not vote a Nigel Farage or wherever people are becoming more and more populist and really dangerous people? No. But you might as well, because the Labour Party's not doing anything for you. And I think you've been right, sadly, over the last year or two, the SNP's been a huge disappointment, um, uh, which has been a shame. So, so yeah, we do need... For a while, we had the SSP... Aye. You know, we had some people in Scottish Parliament who actually were saying again, not radical, quite simple, straightforward solutions to things. Aye. And even that's gone now. You know? I mean, you, 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 there was people, I mean, obviously, like Tommy Sheridan and stuff like that, like to, like even just things like that, just going out and um, campaigning and stuff, having yeah. the bottle to go out and kind of stand up to this. There's nobody. There's no. nobody. I mean, since just somebody like Mary Black, Aye. the SNP, as I say, to, to jack it. Aye. Because like she said, I mean, just the, the you know, I mean, the, the, the shit she gets, you know, it must be unbelievable. Um, but also, it's just the point. I know. You can argue if here, if I, but I'm the only one, it's only me and a few others, and the system will close you down immediately everywhere you go, so there is no point. And you feel the way, no, no, Mary, keep going. I know, I know. <laughs> keep going, so it's good to have your voice there and doing stuff, but I can see how people just go, you know what, I just can't do this It's a anymore. huge burden pressure when you're the only person that's, that's saying something and... When you look at Congress and you look at America and all that, it seems to be the same there as well. And um, I think we push our politics onto people. Uh, and then you've got guys now who are verging on coming. Like, I, th I don't know. Like, I, I, I bet, I'm sure Elon Musk, I don't even know what he's worth, but I'm sure it's something crazy. 50 odd, 60. But it's. There's, I believe if you you're successful and if you're if you're a successful person in life, you work hard and you're good at something, then you should be able to live a good, a luxurious life, live the life that you you want to live. But they sh there should be a cap on the amount of money that you have. Honestly, that's I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm kind of now got a bit more time, and so I'm going to retire from the. Thing. 
university and stuff like that. And that's sort of keeps me like get involved in a campaign, a political campaign or something. So um, the minimum wage, you know, should be a lot, a lot more. Uh, but it's a good campaign. That's the one I would go for. There should be a maximum wage. Aye. Any reasonable society say, you know what? You don't need 60 billion. No. no you actually don't need it. So I would even cap it quite high. If you so can't live with 50 million, million if you want, whatever. Aye. If you can't live with 50 million, then there's something wrong. A million. You know? I know. That's I it. Know. I know. <laughs> you no, just I know. don't need it. You know? know. So all you're going to do is buy more and more stupid cars or whatever. So absolutely, I think a maximum wage, which, you know, People say it's crazy talk, uh, but actually it makes perfect sense. Uh. If you, if you, even if you gave somebody like, if you said like, you're, you can have fifty million pound, right, and that like, if you can't live off that, there's something wrong with you. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can have fifty million, and then the rest goes back into building society up. Let's heal society. Absolutely. Um, I, I totally agree with that. I think there should be a maximum wage. Um, I don't think you should be allowed to have. Some people have got probably more money than could some countries. Right. Um, I doubt. Yeah. People at Bill Gates, the power they've got um, is incredible. Um, and also, no, no other thing is, I'd like to go back to the Victorian age because uh, there's an awful lot of you know, kids up chimneys and all that stuff. But but there was still a kind of a, a sense of social uh, payback, wasn't there? So you were just across the Mitchell Library here. I just Aye. noticed the, the plaque is there. The, uh, Andrew Carnegie himself opened that library over there in 1907. There was an idea if you became very, very rich, you then gave back to... So mm -hmm. he started the entire... So there's libraries all over mm -hmm. the world because one rich guy... I think it's a bit of a bastard in the other way, by Aye. the way. Uh, but he did, he did do that. And I know Bill Gates does some stuff in kind of medicine in Africa and stuff like that, but with the amount of money these people have, they don't seem to me to, to, to want to then pay back by... You know, no. creating infrastructures and and things that would help uh, poor people in poor countries. They don't seem to want to do that. You know, it seems to be one enormous macho competition. I'm just thinking about no. having a, a cage fight between Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk. I, I don't know. know. I mean, in a way, it says it all. I know. That's how pathetic you guys are, and that's the limit of your imagination of what you could do with all. What? I know. Yeah, uh, so I do think that greed has got more of the richer getting richer and richer and they're getting greedier and greedier and greedier and they're keeping more and more of themselves and they get politicians all over the place in their back pockets protecting all that for them. And the really dangerous thing that they do now is that these politicians Less Odie Smog, I think. Oh, my God, I can't stand him. <laughs> I know. But Boris Johnson does it and of all these populist leaders do it, they somehow manage to tell working class people that I'm on your side. I know. <laughs> He's a billionaire. I know. <laughs> He's knowing your side. Know. He really isn't he? No, no I've said it, Chris. I've said it. I've said it to my partner a couple of times. I said, I don't know how they've done it, but it's ingenious. They've managed to make the working class some some working class people now think they're they're not working class, and I don't know how they've done it. It's as if you've got that wee bit extra. If you maybe live in Mogai or Jordan Hill or whatever. You're now no working class. You forget your. It's very easy to forget your roots. And divide and rule immediately sow seeds of. I'm mean, gonna keep my stuff with them. I don't want anybody else to get it. And those guys over there in the nights widow don't trust them. Definitely. And the more you do that, and the more society crumbles. Definitely. Because you know? uh, if, if you can't trust a guy and lives up the street from you, you know we're, we're in big trouble. And the reason why we can't is because Donald Trump is chosen the money. I know. You know. And Boris Johnson. I mean. Actually, if you look at the corruption in the British state over the last couple of years, it is outrageous, unbelievable. Whatever happens to Michelle Moon? I know. I know there's all these. Things. I know. Why is there no police cars outside her house? I know. Because the, the, 
or society protects those people. Mm. Oh no! So it really is outrageous the, the the things that they've got away with and the things that the um, uh, Tony Blair and all that got away with and uh, as it's just it's protected. It's and you, there's there's an element of when you go into then you go into the ju judicial system and that's similar as well. People don't believe what's going on in there. Um, and I think there's a sense that I don't believe that, I don't know how they do it. They, they watch it constantly. I mean, all the way through, politicians have always been corrupt, but somehow in this day and age, they get to believe, they get the the vast majority of society to believe that they're no, like, we were, that was back then. Aye. That happened Aye. back then. It's not like that now. And then in 10 years time, it all comes out and then they go, oh no, but it's, it's, not, that it's not like that now. Yeah, exactly. it's like, it's, and you're like, why do you think these people would change? Yeah. Why? That's quite um, smart. Just all, I'm just one thing I always think I always got to do even for myself is to remind myself is for all the labour I have been an unbelievable letdown for ordinary working people. For everybody, not just working people, for everybody's been such a letdown in so many ways. They did create the NHS and they did create the, the welfare state. I know. And so that one single government, which wasn't a particularly radical government of Atlees in the, the 1940s and 50s, did the most of me. I think, I think now we look back at it now and, of course, the Tories and a lot of Labour have been chipping away to bring it all back know, down again ever since. I think historians in the future, if there's any planet left with historians on it, are going to look back as being the pinnacle of human Achievement will be Aye. the creation of the NHS and the, the welfare state, which was then kind of exported from one version to a lot of the world, civilizing the world, bringing people up, looking after people's health. It is astonishing what that Labour Party achieved, and yet they don't protect it. No, I watched that. I remember I watched a great documentary by Oliver Stone. It was called oh, no. South of the Border. Uh -huh. Um, it was about South America yeah, and it yeah. was like Hugo Chavez and um, I've heard of this and I haven't seen Hugo it yet it and stuff like yeah. that. It was, it's a really really mm. really good uh, documentary but it it basically shows how America kind of tried to overthrow the uh, Venezuelan government and basically the, the, the army turned on the coup and they got Chavez back um, and then Chavez mysteriously dies where an aggressive cancer mm -hmm. but um that's for a whole new other story but the whole thing of that was when you were doing and i remember that i, I can't remember her name but she was the argentinian president and um you um, see her face uh yeah go on really really good really good really, but yeah. she said she was talking to george bush and george bush basically said um like she was saying like how do we create money by and went, we've got the military industrial complex and she was like and what good's that to us? And she went, well, we'll start a war. And she was like, would you, I don't really, and she said, I, could, I really couldn't believe he said it. It was just like blase, like, we'll start a war, like, and we'll get money, revenue for that. Um, and she was like, I don't want to, but if you want to go, you could go to war with Venezuela, kind of thing, and like trying to turn the South American, and then Castro, I think, is on it. And, I love listening to Castro, right? I think he's an amazing speaker. I think, I don't believe fully in communism, right? I don't think, I think there's massive aspects that would be wonderful. Um, and if everybody done their job right, it would be a great idea. It's a great ideology. But um, I think when you listen to Castro and he talks about what we could actually do with, with human, the human mind if there, were, there wasn't that pressure of money, um, 
people haven't the how minds can think, how minds could where we could go, we could date everything together. Give us a great example. I mean, they brought up literacy from Aye. virtually zilch. I know. To ninety nine percent or something like that. I know. Much more literate than Britain or America or more developed countries. I know. Staunching, you know. Aye. The the, the uh, an awful lot of uh, of kind of visual problems. They became uh, the sort of experts in ophthalmology and stuff like that in Cuba, Aye. and they exported uh, to all countries in Africa and places an amazing level of of medical intervention that would help people and stuff like. That. Yeah, but all you ever hear is about uh, Castro and bad Castro, and bad Castro. No, and I don't. Anything. Well, actually, Castro, with a blockade against him and a threat for invasion of all his life, actually. And the, like san- you, the things- sanctions and all that on his country. The sanctions on his country for for for, for when I remember. I mean, they've just been lifted not long ago. I think a lot put back on again. Yeah, so Did Trump they? put back on. So I think who's uh, gone? Obama took some down and then we put back on again. So I think the embargo's back in place again, uh, at least largely. Okay, all over. It's actually coming up to this is August, yeah. So next month is the fiftieth anniversary of the coup in Chile. Right. The first democratically elected. Left wing, um, uh, Allende would call himself a socialist, but uh, kind of a socialist communist. But uh, um, was that the, the fruit? The, was that was that the, the fruit company? No, what was the well, the, the United Fruit Company all over. And that was how the, the the CIA and the American government just worked with the United Fruit Company Aye. all over Latin America to to overturn uh, political regimes and stuff. Uh, but yeah, what happened in, in, in Chile is unbelievable, you know, and is that completely p- Pinochet. Pinochet, aye. Backed up by the, the Americans and all that. And, and we got no, the one good thing about that from our point of view is there's quite a lot of Chilean Scots who aye. have contributed to our society in all sorts of really interesting Is that right? Ways. I never knew that. Aye, aye, there's quite a community. They came over and they were put up by miners. Right. So a very good mate of mine, uh, uh, Oscar Mendoza, is one of very many Chileans who fled Pinochet got out of prison and ran. Oscar was in prison and managed to get out and ran for his life. Ends up in a mining village somewhere in Ayrshire. <laughs> you know, couldn't speak a word of English. Aye. He was only even 19, you know. And there's a lot of stories like that. And now, now Oscar's as Scottish as you, as you and me. Um, I love Scotland. Um, and the vast majority of Chileans stayed in Scotland. So there's Aye. a big bunch of Chileans and their music and art and their ideas have been great for Scotland, Aye. you know, so... That's one of the very few you know, good things to come out of a terrible situation. Poor Latin America. I mean, it was just completely you know, no. held back developmentally by, by the United States for decades. Mm. No, it's, it's it's when you watch south of the border and you see um, what Chavez was trying to do with just actually jeans, just dinner tickets and stuff like that. And again, um, it's anybody that had a wee bit of money in these countries didn't want these people in because... The way the media were portraying it, it was American media again. American media were portraying it. Look, if he gets in power, he's going to take all your money off you. So they scared people, yeah. and it's it's just tactics. You know yourself, Chris. The way they do it, it's just tactics of. And a lot of people I know, uh, uh, watching the American or you, I find it hard and hard to watch anything. Um, but uh, now in Miami, an awful lot of the people who ran from Castro. Convinced they're gonna, he's gonna do terrible things to them all. Are now all mad Trump supporters. Aye. So you got this really weird thing of Latin Americans. You just know Trump hates. You I know? know, I know. But they're all voting I've for Trump it. and all that because they think you know he's he's gonna save them from some weird idea they've got of socialism and communism, which is misunderstood at such a fundamental level. Totally. You know? I mean, there are terrible regimes that use the name like North Korea and places no, use the name is. communism. Nothing, nothing communistic about them that we'd recognise. I think Hitler as well, like obviously, because the socialist, nat- nationalist, 
Uh, that and it's again, it's nothing to do with socialism. Mm. It's no like the socialism that I think about in my head nah. um, when I talk about socialism. But um, so I'll take you back. Can I obviously? I know that you've kind of like you've won awards and stuff like that for different things. Um, so just before we kind of go into your experience about uh, in Berlin and stuff, Chris, can you tell us a wee bit about some of the awards you've won and stuff like that? And Aye, I mean, it's into as a writer. Um, I mean, some of these awards are great and always are no. Uh, and <laughs> they don't have money with them usually. Uh, <laughs> so it's just nice to have. But yeah, I mean, you, you've, as a time you're starting out, you need to kind of make it, you know, get some kind of attention, you know, how to sell a book, you know, and there's, you know, again, how the capitalist system works. A television personality writes a book and there's a huge marketing budget behind no. it. And I've got a wee book and a wee publisher up the road and there's tuppence. Uh, so how do you get people to say, don't need that book, read this book? So, Prizes stuff like that help. Um, so quite early on, I was quite lucky to get a, a couple of prizes that help kind of raise my, my profile a bit. I got me a bigger publisher, a better agent, stuff like that. So prizes are good um, and, and they help uh, 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 writers in, in a lot of ways. I suppose the, the problem for me is, uh, not a problem, one of, one of the strange things about my career, which I've quite enjoyed, um, I'd never really meant to. I started out wanting to write novels, but my first thing happened to be a play, and then I got the job and take the high roads. So before I knew it, I, was, I thought it was a prose writer, but I end up writing television. So for for 30 years, I've managed to put food on the table. Aye. Because if, if I wasn't getting work in radio, then I got work in tele. If I wasn't getting work in tele, then I worked more in the books and trying to get some money at the books. If that wasn't working, I'd do some teaching, uh, creative writing teaching. If that wasn't working, I'd do documentaries. So I've always managed to do different things. Uh, and I'm very definitely, and I... And I I don't say this in some pretend humble way. I'm quite proud of it. I'm, I'm genuinely a jack of all trades and a master of none. You know? I think um, when I was researching it, it was there was too much to even try. There was loads, <laughs> loads. But I, I think the the the, the educate the thing, the educational thing at the the universities. That's a massive oh, achievement. Honestly, I'm so proud to be part of that. Uh, so I wasn't in the very very early days. I was uh, two women who I knew. Um, uh, who ran Shed Productions, who who'd famously did uh, uh, a whole number of great bad girls and stuff on television. Oh, the really girl, famous right. one was uh, Footballers Wives. Oh, right. Which, which I, is, I loved that. Well, I loved it was that a really guilty pleasure, wasn't it? It was absolutely brilliant. So they they made that, uh, but they made it, they're both Scottish uh, and an alien, uh, but they, they went down to Manchester and London, that's where they kind of got all the success and they made a lot of money. Aye. Um, and they still do, uh, but they want to pay back to Scotland. And what they wanted to create uh, television writers um, like themselves. So they got in touch with my, my colleague Anne Marie de Mambro, uh, who who became the first uh, teacher of it, and she brought me in straight away. So over the next fifteen years, we could develop this course, and it's been brilliant. I'm, I'm so proud of being part of it. I'm so proud of all the students. I'm still keeping touch with everybody. So many students doing so well, right. writing television all over the place. Some will go out to television and, go out and use their skills to do theatre instead or something else. But by and large, there are so many of them are still writing, Aye. making some kind of living out of it. Uh, it's been a fantastic thing. And given writers who wouldn't normally get with a lot of uh, uh, um, bursaries. Aye. So writers who wouldn't be able to afford to do courses like that, we you know, desperately trying to get you know, bursaries in to make sure that you know that guy there yeah, is we... a great writer. Mm -hmm. But... He's got two young kids and very low income. And when the hell is he going to find time to read, to write? No. Or that single mother there or whatever. And so we'd be desperate to bring him in. And they tended to be the better writers. So that will take us kind of exactly into where we kind of want to go. Because obviously you've, you've yourself, you've seen the talent that was in Berlin. And obviously we'll go into that in a wee bit more detail, Chris, right? But 
I'm going to just take you back to when you actually just kind of walk into the prison. Um, I always remember the first time I went into Pullman. I just, there's an energy there that I can't explain. It's no nice. Um, it's a kind of draining energy. It's, um, you're obviously going through doors after doors and, and some of the staff, I know all of them, but some of the staff can be pretty uh, regimented and uh, authoritarian and stuff. So you're kind of, know where you're, you know you're stepping up. How did you feel when you were going to, when you first came out of prison? How, how did you feel? So it was out of MATV that this came up. Uh, so one of my uh, students, um, uh, Mark McNichol, um, I kind of knew I'd heard about him. He's, he's still part of the groups. So I knew he was kind of doing more and more stuff and he, he's kind of doing the production line more than the writing line. He still writes and a very good writer. Um, but I knew he was doing work with uh, both recovering addicts or addicts, mm-hmm. uh, both alcohol and drugs. And and working in prison, uh, I was always very impressed by what the guy did. And they got in touch me about six months ago, but more than that, uh, he got in touch with me and said, "There's this project." And I said, "One right." Well, he called at that point an infomercial. I still don't know what an infomercial. <laughs> uh, to write some of the prisoners about liberty and the problems and and, and uh, pros and cons. Uh, and my first reaction interior was, "Hey," uh, but I found myself saying. Aye, um, perhaps I felt as if, uh, well, one, there was a wee bit of money attached to it, and you know, as a writer, freelance, I've need pension and stuff like that, you know, so mm-hmm. there's a wee bit of money, so that was one thing. But mainly, I thought, but there's other things I could have done that would have paid better. Um, I thought, actually, that's a way of paying back, and also interesting, interesting, mm-hmm. you know. So, as somebody's always been interested in crime, right? Berlin, I've never mm-hmm. been in Berlin, it's a legendary place, mm-hmm. you know. And I was amazed how wrong I was about, I've never been Berlin once again. So that's, so I said I, uh, and then for the next so three or four weeks before I actually started and more and more I was thinking, oh, I wish I had done this. <laughs> and I'll start, I can't even, I'll never forget my first morning to be honest, driving over there and yeah, and first of all, it's got this uh, kiddie on entrance now. I know. So, I know. No, I hadn't seen that before the last time, I only just saw the, the big towers Aye. and all that stuff. It's kind of welcome to Berlin as if you go to an amusement park or something, you know, <laughs> no. takes that. But the minute you get beyond that, it's I noticed that my, my heart was in my feet. And I had to think, why am I doing this? I shouldn't be doing this. Also, I'm not going to be good at it. And what's it going to matter to these guys in here of creative writing? I found Aye. out later on, a couple of guys said to me, they're me well being taken into the room to meet me, and they're all going, uh, you know, <laughs> some wacky West End writer coming over here. <laughs> so he's an exact same, I'll go, I'll go in there. Uh, and then, as you say, the door after door, the lock after lock. And I, I'm a wee bit, uh, so I must be hellish for prisoners who are, I'm a wee bit uh, claustrophobic. You know? I'm, oh God, it's quite scary. What the hell do you go here? Um, so my, my heart's getting even deeper down the more and more I'm walking on these, Aye. you know? And I'm walking, I'm taking it, there's a group of guys sitting around on the same colour shirts and stuff like that, you know? And it's just guys. And honestly, Sean, took 15 minutes. Within 15 minutes, I'm a roaring about laughing because they Aye. were hilarious. And they were really fun. A couple of guys that were honestly could be stand-ups. They were, There's nothing like jail part. Oh. A lot of the guys, are, like I just say, is the jail part is brilliant. And it's all banter uh, in the right, in the right um, area, like in, the right, in that kind of projects and stuff like that. It's all banter, do you know what I mean? And yeah. people have, uh, that's probably missing nowadays in 
uh, normal society. You don't get that kind of banter with, with, with the way you do. It kind of reminded me of being back in the boys' school and the way like uh, guys, you know, slagging each other Aye. off and all that <laughs> stuff, you know, uh, and very funny all the time. And I'm sure you're, I'm sure it's also kind of a survival strategy, you know, if you've been Aye. there for all those years and stuff. Like, how do you, how do you survive and how do you make sure you go in with people and stuff like that? No, get too close as well. So there's all that stuff. I found the politics of all that really interesting. Uh, the guys were incredibly generous to me. I mean, Aye. they accepted me straight away. I'm some guy that doesn't know what I'm doing. Uh, and to be honest, they were great. Luckily, because of MATV and all this, I've got a lot of different strategies about how you get people writing. And I know I can do that. Um, so I know there's certain, I call them basically games, there's games that I play. Aye. So let's try this. So one thing I do is I, I tap a desk. I get them to shut their eyes and say, what is it you hear? Mm -hmm. And I think, know my fingers, what could it be? Mm -hmm. And then from that, some people say it's a dripping tap, it's a, it's a guy running, it's, it's a, somebody walking upstairs, mm -hmm. it's a clock ticking, it's a metronome on a piano, whatever it might mm -hmm. be. And out of that, we start to create stories. So that's one. I do loads of these different things. Mm -hmm. And they loved it. They were really mm -hmm. in it. There was a good laugh and they built up great stories. You know? And then we started to build up characters. Right? Okay, let's just create a character from scratch. You know? And start building up characters. Now put that character into that story. And so the story gets even better. You know? So... They were really into it, and they were really good at it. Um, so I watched it. The first session was two hours, supposed to was when I ended up doing it for about three. And I came out, and I just loved that. You know? And the progress you made in three hours was astonishing. After that, honestly, I'd have gone in every day. I mean, Aye. I really, days I wasn't here, and I was going to... I wish it was in I there. Was gonna it, which must be, and I'd tell them that, and they were pissing themselves laughing, and can he get out of here? Aye. You know, and I'm, you're looking forward to coming in here. Who looks forward to coming in here? Aye. So it's a weird thing, and you're, you're very aware of it as you walk out every day. I know. They're no. I know. Uh, and the more you got to know them, to be honest, to this day, I still don't know the absolute details of what they did or didn't they do. But you get a fair smart of the on the panel, what they did. Like, I don't think any of them should have been in there. Aye. It's not helping anybody, no helping them, and it's no help society. It's costing a fortune, and it's a waste of everybody's time. I know. Yeah? Uh, talented. And they're all. Like the rest of us have all got their problems, they've all done things they shouldn't have done, they get caught, the rest of us, didn't they? Uh, but you can't help but think, you know, the rich put poor people in jails a lot. Yeah. You don't see, um, you don't see anybody for the rich parts of Glasgow in prison, um, it's all kind of scheme boys and it's people with Unless it's pedophiles. Horrified, that, well that's, that's kind of a, definitely a theme that goes. Um, but the... The, some of the stories in the backgrounds of some of the guys are horrendous. Um, and see guys like yourself going in, Chris, and just showing people, see people, prisoners are great at reading people. They they know when somebody's sincere. So they'll see that you're organic and they'll see that you're going in there to help and that they have no, there's no sense of judgment there. And see even that quote that, quote that people sometimes say to you, like some people say to me, um, oh, I don't judge you, and I go, I know, I don't judge you either. And they go, but you're just saying that you're judging me, and, and, and people say, be nice, do you know what I mean? And, um, and I, sometimes I just leave it, but other times I'll go, I'll kind of say, um, but people, that people can see organic people in the jail, and they know when people are sincere. So, um, what was the kind of your kind of ups? I mean, obviously, there's. I know there was there was there was somebody quite close to you that you were about a boy that was quite close to you and 
What was his story? You know, uh, uh, prison life, you know, the stories. I mean, it is. You know, the, the other reason for going is because it's going to be interesting as a writer's point of view. And my God, is a prison an interesting place because you're right. Everybody's story is fascinating. Aye. How they ended up here. How they got on. And you're right. Nearly always is from horrendous back stories. Um, and you get wee. Because again, I'm not asking them. So what to tell me, they can tell me, you know. Uh, and some days they came out, so you find me bits and pieces. But one of them, a uh, uh, guy won't mention his name, um, quieter than the other guys. So everybody's kind of chucking ideas and they're all really bright. You know? um, so I was chucking great ideas for stories, stories, stories. This wee guy, um, let, let me call him Jim. Uh, Jim would do less, but when he did, mm-hmm. quiet voice. Uh, really good ideas too. That's a brilliant idea. In fact, quite often there's such a wee quiet voice going on and I go, oh, hang on a minute. What did you just say? So, God, that'd be brilliant. You know? So he was really good, but quieter. Uh, he looked about 12. Um, so... The story about him I found amazing was he he never knew, and before he got to prison, he never knew his dad. Right. Uh, I think he may knew him, but he aye, never aye, knew him. Aye, and he knew who he was and stuff like that. Maybe seen him and stuff, but there was no relationship at all. Mm-hmm. But his dad was a lifer. Right. And at the end of doing it on license, doing a, uh, his last few years the in Germany. Yeah. Um, so every Thursday afternoon, they were allowed to go walking around the yard together, and the other person said, "You got to see him. See him says, put their arms around each other." You know, so the oh, old man and the son who had never talked and never got on probably aye. in all those years are both in prison. And aye. I went, well, "That's just an amazing story." You know? And that, that tells you so much about relationships, and it was just it's real good. What story? I know it's quite it's 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 heart touching and people. It's that you can see you've that empathy and you've got that compassion and I don't know, Chris. I don't know how, how would you say to people out there that just go like, um, "Fuck them, they, des- they deserve bread and water." What what would you say? Like, how could you? I mean, we're trying to change, obviously change minds, and we're trying to. But what would you say? Like, how would you? Can I say like your experience? Just how would you try and change I that? I don't mean, but actually, I put something on Facebook a few weeks ago. Once we finished the script part of the process, put something on Facebook, just saying how much I'd enjoyed it and learned from it. And there was nobody going uh, on Facebook, going back and going, oh, fuck them. Uh, Aye. But there were people going, you know, some are bad people and stuff, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. Uh, and yeah, so you do have to, how do you respond to that? And first thing I think is, is for anybody, mm-hmm. you know, from from your position, show on the other side of it, mm-hmm. I must be you know really aware of this, is I'm walking around and you're going, they're but for fortune. Aye. I don't just mean no getting caught at something. Somebody's got to get caught and they're in there for no very much. Aye. There's no, a backlog def- of other stuff aye, as well, definitely. but you know, they actually get caught for doing something. I've done that. Aye. Uh, but you got caught, didn't you? Um, and I'm sure that's true of, uh, you're probably lying or you've been incredible goody two-shoes if at no point in your life there wasn't a chance that had things gone the other way. So first of all, it could be you. I know. Uh, and secondly, like, there but for fortune, well, what was your up about? Uh, I know I had a lucky upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that my my mum had had jobs, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, blah 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 blah. So there's a whole number of things that that lead into how you might be end up in there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you're two steps away, so you can sit back there and go, "These are terrible people." And by the way, there will be some genuinely terrible people in there. Uh, of course, it will be because there are genuinely terrible people out here. To, uh, and there's mm. there's there's more. If you're a good criminal, you're outside. <laughs> Um, you're not inside, That's and I, I try. I try to tell I'm people that. that like, yeah, <laughs> um, uh. most of the good criminals are outside. You know what I mean? You don't get caught. Uh, 
So, and that's not to say, like, there's lo- the, the prison's full of kind of people, and then you've got guys, you've got your different kind of, you've got your organised crime guys, um, you've got your guys that are like drug addicts, and you've got your guys that are alcoholics, you've got your guys that are just kind of violent in nature, um, for whatever reason, you've got your guys who um, are just had an unlucky break, had a fight outside a club, punch somebody, whatever, there's, been, there's just so many different stories. And you're right, it's people don't understand how easy it is to happen. Um, and I think what people need to realise is, I always try and say, everybody's got somebody that's got, everybody's got a dodgy pal. Most people have got a dodgy pal that they they go, oh, he's just a lovable rogue. That is, that's the, that's the people, everybody, that's what the prison's full of these people. I, I was in the prison for 15 years. I was in the prison system and I genuinely believe I only come across maybe one, two evil people that um, really were bad people. Which is probably the same uh, ratio as you would do here. Total, and most of the maybe guys like- who were, were, were even like violent and stuff like that and they were nice people. They were just... Um, their whole... Um, ethos on life was flipped for a young age right. um, and they were taught a different way right. I, do- I taught a different set of rules from a normal I, I, I don't like to say normal because it's, it's what's, everybody's normal? N- what's mm-hmm. normal so um, no I think that's a good way you've put it I think that's a good way because it's, it's obviously this is trying to raise awareness of how how do we reform the prison system how do we how do we make it better and it's people like yourself going in with projects and stuff and having the the the, the kind of the balls to come out on a on a podcast and say I'm talking about luck. I mean, probably every single guy in our prison and lots of other people as well have stories like it. Homelessness, you know. Um mm-hmm. the people got a story. So it's nothing new, but I happen to have heard one recently. It wasn't a brother actually, it was uh, it was somebody working because now I now told other people weren't in prisons. Uh I think it was from Stockton, but as a guy who was a, a roofer, but a roofer with his own company. So this guy was doing really well. He had his own company doing doing roofing. They, they charge a lot of money and stuff like that. So middle class guy, you know, making good money, living in some nice area of Edinburgh. But he falls off a roof and uh, he injures his back really badly. Um, he's not disabled, but he's but he can't do roofing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the same time as the bank crash. Mm-hmm. But basically, everything, his profession and his money disappear virtually overnight. Mm-hmm. And he's no quick way of getting back in. So he loses his house. His marriage breaks up. Mm-hmm. He's on the street. This is a guy who six months before was living in a middle-class house, having his own company. Mm-hmm. was on the street and desperate, know nothing how to do it and clearly being really rubbish are you right good criminals are out here <laughs> he tries to break into someone's house to steal some whatever to try and get some Aye. money and of course it's caught Hi. within six months I know he said to, if, honestly if you're sitting there and saying judging people and going you know, who they and saying, honestly just be careful I know. You know because God knows where you'll be in six months you know? I know because it could happen to any one of us and if you if you don't realise that there's something blind about you, you know. I mean, I know. that's mental not to recognise it could be you. And it's not even the the the, the middle class. There's a, there's there's 
there's a the middle class people um i've got a huge intake on cocaine and stuff like that the the statistics well, that's um right. mm. they, they smoke hash um they drink a lot um and i'm i've listen i've not got a problem like live and let live do do what you want to do but you're committing a crime um when you do that mm. so when you go and buy that coke or whatever you're committing a crime yeah. you are being part of the organized crime that you then demonize yeah. um at the end of it. so people really need to realize when they're doing these things that they're being a part of it and that's how easy that's it is to be absolutely and um, even just things like you ever did all your expenses of eva you know, i know another, probably in any given day ordinary Aye. people commit quite a lot of crimes definitely that they don't get caught for i know and it's trying to get people to see that the prisons are full and what prison does is you go into prison and you commit worse because you learn behaviors you're taught over maybe if you go in for a year whatever two year there's a good chance that you'll take something to get through that and i try to say to people why do you not see that as a logical escapism from your own head and from a toxic environment why do you not see the logic in taking something i don't get why you punish and demonize that and then you'll get guys who can play the system are cleverer um and maybe don't take drugs but are never going to change they want they still want to live the criminal life and i've i know plenty of good people guys that are brand new that that, are, that do that chris but um, it's trying to inform the public that when you're demonising the prison system, you're demonising a really marginalised population. You're, you're, that's no all Peter Tobins, and it's that's the very, very. It's a small minority that these. So when you're wanting harder sentences, you're wanting harsher this, harsher that, and bringing the justice, they listen to that. So they start getting out these big sentences and then what happens is the prison system's no equipped and it's no built for rehabilitation. You'll see that yourself, Chris, when you go in. I mean, I don't know what your take is on rehabilitation, but my take is rehabilitate somebody. Um, I mean, what was your views on rehabilitation in prison? Did you see any going on? Did you... Well, hopefully, I know. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't see much other than what I did. I mean, hopefully, the very fact that there are people in doing things like that and they're bringing people like me in, um, then hopefully, then there's there's so there's the well-being department. There's all, I'm aware of all these people Aye. doing things around about, and and a lot of them actually, you know, that's the prisoners themselves. Aye, they're quite often, you know, mm -hmm. the, the the movers and shakers in there. So yeah, I got. I mean, yeah, I, I did come. To, weirdly, um, I come away from Berlin working and I might have been lucky Sean but the eight or nine guys that I worked with over the, the six weeks I'm still working with um, and the various people might beyond that for me it was kind of a place of hope I mean I, mm -hmm. I genuinely liked it and I thought there was a real sense of I mean it's hell you know I mean mm -hmm. your story about uh, you know taking drugs in prison that same wee guy Jim by the way they, they end up still this wee guy Jim who's, who's got to know his dad in jail Although he's quiet at the thing we're writing the script. Um we were actors went along, so we can't just write stuff, you gotta act it. You gotta, you know, so Jim became the main character. Mm -hmm. And he was brilliant. I mean, really brilliant. Partly because he was good at acting. Uh, Is this the boy that was quiet at the start? Yeah. But partly because he kinda was Kev. Mm -hmm. And Kev was the name of our character. He kinda was. It was kinda his mm -hmm. 
some of completely different all the ways, but it's the same kind of idea. So Kevin wasn't unlike this wee guy, Jim. So Jim was loving it. I mean, just, and he was brilliant. And he did a lot of, come, every time I came in, he thought about it more. He said, how about I did this line this way? And I'd, if I read it out that way, or maybe if I changed it doing this, really thinking it through. Really, and every time he did a read through, he was just brilliant at it. I mean, Aye. really, real natural ability to become this terrific. He, and apparently from what I understand was he he, 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 he didn't do much drugs in, in, in jail. But one weekend, he did. Now, whether it was because it was a, a, the system wasn't used to it and whatever, Aye. anyway, he completely and utterly got mad with it. Totally mad with it. So what they do about that is they take him off the project. Mental. He's devastated because off the project. He's created this character. You know, one of the main people to create this character. He's going to, we're going to record it and he's going to be the main actor. And suddenly, he's not. So, it's like, well, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. If you want to rehabilitate in any sense at all, that guy could do that. They made the tape. It could be done. People can hear it outside. I mean, you can get right. it on broadcast somewhere else. And it could be a wee step for him to come out once he's out to do some with his life or whatever. Definitely. Unless I'll become, you know, Tom Cruise. But no. Do no, something. Get him into the theatre world, mm-hmm. that, you know, whatever. Um, or, it's, all, it's clearly built up a confidence in him that um, it didn't have before. And then they just take it away. I know. Because... Because of another tragedy that happens to him, so as if he willfully went out and got mad with it and was some kind of something wrong with him, and then you punish him again for that. Like, this just isn't working. No. And it isn't working for society either. And it's certainly not working for the likes of Jim. So what is the point? I know. Uh, what you need to do is actually give him more time. I know. You know, say, right, okay, you, you went off the rails there, so we need to get you back in doing more of this because you love all that and you stayed off it. But, you know. No, that's the, the, it's the, it's the, you've got, I don't like. I don't. I don't like. I don't want to make an enemy of the prison system, and um, I day. I day kind of come down hard on the prison system because I don't. I, I don't. I don't see the prison. I don't see the rehabilitation they talk about. I don't see the reform they talk about. But they are working on a limited budget. They're working um, and a set of rules. They're delegated um, a certain amount of power to create rules, and it's up to the governor. And it depends on what governor you get, which then depends on the rules that are implied in the jail. Um, but I don't see rehabilitation. I see the prison system really broken you now. I see a lot of drugs in it. I see a lot of kind of lost souls that need help. Um, and it's projects like yourself that bring these things out. But as you say, Berlin has got 1,500 people in it. Many people, there's nine in your class. So you're helping nine boys. And even if you were to help two or three of them, that's a massive success. It is, Chris. It's taking somebody and showing, look, you don't need to. So you do that, put all the hard work in, um, and then it's done to a prison officer whether they want to let him go back to the project and they choose no to. So what is that telling them? That's telling them again, hide what I'm doing. Don't tell them anything then because I'll not get to do my project. Because if I tell them if I've got a drug problem, they're clearly going to punish me for it. And so you just but telling them there's no way out. No matter no, what you do, there's no way out. Aye, and the, and the trust is broke. So see, when you break that trust, you can never ever. What well, the, the, there needs to be a healing process in the prison, and I don't know if that'll ever happen in my time. I, I wish it. I wish it could because it would be an amazing thing to watch and you can see it in the Nordic system and stuff like that where it does happen. Um, 
we're miles off it and I think it's a societal thing. I don't think society want to see it. Um, they're not typically wanting money pumped into prisons, but it's people like yourself that are brave enough to go in and brave enough to come out and speak about the, it's not even the injustice, it's just the... The brokenness of it. The brokenness of it it's and the... Working it's not working and how long are you going to keep it going for I I don't think there's a a massive um, it's not a big fault on yourself if you turn around and you go look hold my hands up it's not working we need to start again we never built this this is a system that was handed to us the SPS don't need to they they just need to look at the system and go look at the drug deaths rising there's the drug intakes the violence is rising um, and it just seems to be nothing, and it's because they 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 become conditioned. I've said it a million times. They become conditioned the same way as prisoners become conditioned. So staff become this kind of Berlin. When you go into Berlin, you know it's a staff jail. Um, I don't know if you got that feeling. I kind of what you mean. Yeah, I um, what you mean. If you ever go to Adwell or something, you see a difference. All right. If you were to go to Adwell, you would see a difference. No. A huge difference, but you would just know Sense it. Yeah. Berlin is like we are in charge here, like, and that's it. Like, the, the, the staff, like, you know, that they're in charge. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people that go in and do these projects say they get a lot more hassle for the staff than they do the prisoners, which is sad because there's a lot of staff that are there that would love to speak out, but if they if they speak out they get demonised by their own staff. So, where, where, it's, it's like, where do you go with it? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's amazing projects like what you're doing. You're getting some of that confidence, that self-esteem back. And then... Well, it's a societal, I mean, you're right, it does, it does amaze me. You know, you think, uh, and, it, and I'm probably one that doing six months ago, I never thought about this. You know? uh, right. going, why, why wasn't I thinking more about this? Um but I mean, I did know we jail far more people than virtually any other developed country apart from the state. So we right. again, we're we're leaning towards uh, an American model of things, which you know has, has always been more inhumane than than what Europe and other developed nations have tried to do. So we keep on jailing people all the time, and then everybody keeps on going crazy about there's not enough jails and when we need too much money. So oh, stop jailing people! I know. I'm not sure it would cost any more money because it costs a lot of money to keep somebody like oh, yourself I- in jail. You can have them outside living in their own houses and, and doing, you know, whatever it is, community stuff and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there must be a mil- Surely it's not beyond our ability. To no. say instead of locking people up for a lot of money, you know, actually there are other things we can do. Uh, but the, the bigger, wider, so it's go way back to where we started, the bigger, wider social problem is this endless division between, you know, the, know. the middle classes and the rich not want to even see. No. People who have got more difficult backgrounds and then blaming them for it rather than the system. As if somehow it was their fault that they were born into an impoverished area and a difficult area and stuff like that. So there is a societal problem there, but surely we can do something even within that context. Just stop putting people in jail was pointless. I know. I've put it to some people before who work in prisons, um, who work in interventions, work in different things, and I'll put it to them and I'll say, like we gym, like for talking sake, we gym. Um, goes up. His mum, dad, heroin addicts. Uh, exposed to a lot. Uh, exposed to a lot of violence and stuff when he's young. Um, goes to care, young age. Exposed to a system that's violent there. 
um, hits 13, 14, hits the streets, exposed to kind of gang culture, exposed to organised crime, looking up to people that have got big flashy cars, big flashy watches, blah, blah. Um, the trend goes on, do you know what I mean? People look up. Um, and these guys that are in organised crime and stuff like that, some of them are the nicest guys you would meet. And they have been pushed into that by circumstances, by, by circumstances and where they come from and stuff. Um, and don't get me wrong, you don't want to go on the wrong side of these people. And there's a lot of kind of there's a lot there's a nasty world out there, and there's a an undercurrent in the the prison system that you people don't realise. But that undercurrent keeps you on a hyper vigilant state constantly, which isn't good for your body. Mm. So see when sure. you come out in the community. Where are you expecting this wee guy that's grew up through that? Then he's been into prison at 16 year old, been exposed to com coming out. And the only family he does have is his pals who are drinking and running about doing mad things. And people become comfortable in chaos, which I don't think the normal person understands. Still not lying to. Uh, <laughs> comfortable in chaos, brilliant. But uh, people do become comfortable in yeah. chaos. And you take them out of the chaos and they go, this is too. Normal, like, why is it, this is too normal? Like, why well, don't know? I need to go back to that. I need to go back. I'm ha that's when I'm happy. Yeah. I'm, yeah, because that's all they that's know. In you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you go. I say, where do, where do they fit in your society? Where do these people fit in? And they go, well, they shouldn't commit crime. And I'm like, is that your really your answer? Mm. That's it. Like, that's very helpful. Thanks so like, much. Is that, look, look no. at the war on drugs. Just don't take drugs. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Look at the state of America now. Exactly. Um, and by the way, as you're saying that, holding your pint in your hand. I know. I know. You're telling us not to I take know. drugs. I know. Yeah. Your fag. I yeah. know. It's the, the worst drugs in the world. The worst. And obviously, I, I, I enjoy a pint. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Now and again, no, um, I'm, not, I'm not a big drinker, but I enjoy double standards. You know, totally. And but you, I do think that thing about you, what you do, but I think. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Been nice the things saying about people and me doing stuff like doing it. But I'd honestly, genuinely, I'm, I'm not saying this as a, as a line. I genuinely learned more from it than they learned from me, uh, and I, I probably enjoyed it a lot more than they did too. Uh, in a way, I feel quite guilty about that, but I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the whole thing. I'm enjoying going back in again. I'm um, just going back in now as a volunteer. I like it. Um, I just think that shows uh, the type of person you are, Chris. Um, the world, the, the world needs more Chris's. Yeah. But then again, I think the stuff that you're doing. So if you're saying brave, no, half the place what you're doing, Sean. So your entire story and then coming out and doing this and talking to other people and trying to face up to the system, you're actually, you know, a victim of the whole thing, you know. Um, that I think this kind of stuff and getting more people to think about it, to not just drink a pint and go, they shouldn't commit crimes. You know, like, Whoa, know. you know, there's a whole lot of things. I mean, I think stuff like you're doing, and I think that is very brave to come out and talk as you do so plainly you. about your own experience your own life and the amazing about turn you've made in it i think that's what we need here so these not just prisoners you know and prisoners it's all i can't use their names but you know, know. as well and james and eric and they're guys they're like guys like you or me there's sean dole is a person you know? know and stop making people's numbers and you got some you know vague idea in your head of criminals i know, you know? which doesn't get anywhere anywhere you know? no and most of the criminals that you you see, obviously in Berlin, if you look at them, they're a threat to nobody. And I'm not trying to say there's Most no, themselves. there's no, there's no, I, there's no, I'm not trying to say there's no violent people in uh, Berlin. There certainly is, but um, there's so many 
just lost souls. And then you hear about, I hear it often on my work, um, guys that you knew dying with overdoses, um, guys that come out of prison, uh, committing suicide. And, um, and it's so sad that, 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 because there's no support there. And again, they become comfortable in that prison life. I, I never, I hated every minute of prison. I hated every second of it. It nearly broke me um, a good years. few times. I no, a good few times, Chris, it nearly broke me. Um, and I was lucky to come out, and I've been lucky with social workers and stuff that I've had. I've been lucky with good social workers and stuff like that. And um, so there's a lot of stuff that, I, that I've been blessed with. I've been blessed with a partner who's amazing. Um, so I've got, I've, I've been really, really lucky with the family structure I've got, but 95% of the people don't, don't have that. that. Yeah. Um, and 95% of the people don't have anybody mm -hmm. uh, to turn to and go, can we do that? Like, or, or, or a lot of them can't even read and write. No. So where, you, where, where is it you're expecting them to go? I just don't see, I try and say, where, where do you try and fit this person into society? Where does he go? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't just keep locking them up all the time. Uh, no, and there's plenty of places. Like obviously, this is what I try to do. But I try this podcast all about trying to highlight uh, projects like yourself, highlight um, different uh, organisations and the work they do. Uh, Davy Spirit Aid stuff like that. Then we've got like Phoenix Futures coming on. We've got different uh, to try and show that everybody's all singing for the same hymn sheet here. Well, no, all rang. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. We're all coming to the same conclusion. And a lot of these organisations, what I found very encouraging, because there are encouraging things. So that you know, I don't know enough about. It. I don't know. If you're totally immersed in it. I've just been in, you know, uh, uh, doing doing my wee thing. But uh, I am quite taken by how often in the organisations I've been involved in, just marginally. Aye. Um, how many of them are actually it is actually his cons themselves? Aye. Which I think really makes a difference. So it's not just you know, uh, good-minded people coming in and helping out. It's actually right. people who know, like Definitely. yourself, have been there and know what it's like. And, and also, to be you know, the way you are, very, very honest about it, saying, look, I, I know there's bad people and, and also lots of us have done bad things, but to try and find from a much more realistic uh, right. way, and I think that's actually very encouraging. There seems to be quite a lot of these incredibly, uh, I find, very uh, eloquent people I've been working with to come out and to start to use that as a kind of a platform to Aye. start to begin to talk about their experience and and to build from that rather than from some sort of slightly do goody thing, but Definitely. actually from from you know from from the basis upwards. Yeah. No, it's uh, I agree with you totally and it's like um there's so many people with potential in prison and it's just breaking down there's um I've had to drop a lot of my ego. I've had to drop a lot of stuff that I learned, le prison learned behaviours, stuff like that, that um, weren't suiting me well in society. Um, you think everybody's coming at you that's got an agenda. The, the way you think in prison, you need to kind of lose that. Um, and that takes time. Sure. So people that are coming out of prison and they maybe reoffend, why we've got such a high reoffending rate is because we're doing absolutely nothing in prison. Then when they get out, they really don't know where they stand. There's there's people trying to help, and I'm, there's social workers trying to help. There is people there that's trying to help, but you also have that flip side where you get people that aren't that that, that are there to just to stand your way. I've got that power. Yeah. They're power hungry, and and they maybe I don't know. It's 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 no nice, but it's just, it does happen. Um, 
and I feel as if we lose a lot of good social workers and stuff like that. We lose an awful lot of good social workers because they see, wait a minute, then this isn't, this, 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 I'm, there's no work in this. Like, I'm, You're not seeing enough progress in what you're nah. doing. That could be defeating for anybody in any profession going, I keep trying, I keep trying, but if the whole society is going to end up going, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, then I know. it gets hard for social workers than anybody. Nah. And I understand people saying um, there's no enough, there's no enough like money to put into the prison system. There's no enough. Where are we going to date? The cost of living's going up. Why should prisoners get it? I get that. But just come out and say that then. Admit it. Own it. Own it and say, look, it's a containment centre. That's what it is. We're containing people and we'll help what we can. But that's what we can only do with a limited budget. And I think if people were to hear that, people would go, no, nah, I don't think that's right. Exactly. That then gives us the opportunity that, to say, hold on. Aye. Instead of... Like making like making kind of value systems up and all that that right. don't actually human rights. I had I got a guy the other day saying human rights. You've got all your human rights in prison, bar uh, right to freedom. I'm like, are you kidding me on? Like that's madness to, yeah. to suggest that. It's insulting as well when yeah, you've absolutely. been when you've been in jail for so long. Um, so obviously we're just coming up to the kind of final finalising. I could talk all day to you, Chris. Um, but Likewise. is there anything like that you would like to kind of say? Is there anything that you would like to? Because obviously we spoke we spoke earlier about your kind of cycling stuff um, and how that kind of saved you. Um, and obviously, is there anything else that you would like to kind of finish up with? Like, yeah, but I'm, I'm at an interesting time. It's funny. I was just saying my birthday yesterday, so I'm now officially a pensioner. <laughs> it's so weird. You know? uh, <laughs> It's good, the generation's changed. Yeah, your bus my, pass now. Yeah, well, I've had that for a while, actually. I actually get that at 60. Uh, I'm now 66, so I'm now get my pension. You don't look um, it. You don't look it. You look great for it. You I do. like it very much. Definitely <laughs> But in a way, I think, that, I suppose it is that thing, you you you, you get this age thing, you, you know, that, uh, what have you learned? Uh, what have you contributed? What have you stood in the way of? Um, Whatever time's left to you, what do you do about it? You know, so I mean, part of it is I, I, I try to keep myself healthy and stuff like that. Uh, but like, you know, then again, I've got a lot of bad habits. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I try and do stuff and do stuff with the family and all that. But as, as a, you know, as the whole prison thing for me, in, in some ways I find it really fascinating as a writer. So even beyond all the stuff we're talking about societally, but actually from what it is to be a prisoner. Funny, you actually asked me if there's any possible, because I, I write some uh, poetry to write uh, something for you. Aye. And I've been toiling with it for ages and Aye. nothing's coming out. And that's one of the problems that you never know. And then suddenly, next Thursday morning, hopefully, go, oh God, I know how to do this now. Aye. But nothing's come well, to me. Please, if you do, I'll we'll, you know. we'll read it out and then we'll read it out in one of the... Because okay. it's a fascinating human experience. You know, it really is. I mean, even though it's also, and I know I'm getting out at five o'clock, I know I'm locked in for that bit, you know, Aye. and nothing about the human rights is just so ridiculous. Or no human rights, you know. know. The minute they get, these are the very special guys with privileges who get allowed for two hours to spend a bit of time with me uh, or somebody like me doing whatever, and then they're back to this regimented. You know, they've got nothing. They've got no agency over their own choices, their own lives. I had a story which you would recognise, Sean, but for people like me, it's really important to hear these stories. Uh, one of the guys tell me, I, Billy, go out of prison. And uh, somebody's talking to me. Says he, he got to his, his his front door, and says, and he stood looking at it for thirty seconds a minute before he realised he could open it himself. Mm -hmm. So that kind of institution. I mean, I thought, whoa, 
Now, that kind of institutionalized thing, mm. we can't even think, oh, God, I can open that. Hey. I find all that, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing human experience and, the, and how people get through. I look at these guys and I look at you and I think, I would crumble. You know, I would, I would crumble. And all these guys go, you're, you're surviving this. And not only that, you're surviving all those negative attitudes outside and the whole kind of society kind of pitched against you in so many ways. Yeah, you just keep on going, you know? And not only that, I'm the one that's falling about laughing because they're funnier. You know? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they're funnier. They're in a better mood than I am. Unbelievable. And I find all that really interesting. So I do think there's something really rich in that experience. And to know people, you know, and the work that you're doing, I find for me as a writer, that's something that I know I, I want to do more about. Even if it comes out in a slightly different way. Uh, but, but that whole idea of how we are in some ways, all of us imprisoned uh, and how you break free of the various things that are imprisoning you. I find, I find fascinating enough. And I found a lot of kind of uh, uh, um, stuff to be completely in awe of in prisoners and how they get through. There's um, obviously, obviously we're hoping like if this podcast goes well and it takes off in uh, any kind of shape or form and it kind of gets to any kind of level, we will be kind of trying to build a social enterprise on the back of it. And it will be kind of doing creative. So we would definitely, this is the type of stuff we would like to keep. Um, we'll be looking today, kind of crime titan events and stuff like that, where we get people maybe like yourself, Chris, to come along and just explain, just to get like open events where people can drop in and just kind of speak to people that have had um, that kind of, just kind of that, that connection with prisoners, just to explain it's no, it's no what it's made out to be. It's no what you think. No. Um, Everybody should be made to visit a prison at least once in their life. Particularly those who have got all these attitudes. Aye. Go and see one, actually. I know. You might find a whole lot of things. You'll find it scary. You I've know? always said, see the Justice Minister, and I know this is radical, but I think the Justice Minister should go into a prison and serve a week in jail. Why just not? to see what it's like. Why not? And Absolutely. then go, right, I know how that works now. So this is where I want to change. I want to change that, that, that. They've done a few times, not enough. They've done a few times with, uh, with poverty, haven't they? Say, these people say, you know, poor people can live down there. that poor. So, right, okay, here, you go out and do it. And a few people have done it and, and have been changed by it at Aye. the time. You know, so, you know, actually, it's a lot more difficult than I realised. So I think it did, right? Why not? You're the Justice Minister. You should understand. Um, so I think that's a great idea. That's a brilliant Aye. idea. No, yeah. no. I uh, yeah, certainly things they're doing, whatever I'm doing. I mean, I do think creative writing classes are quite good, or creative creativity, you know, because it's, if it's done the right way, some people are very precious about it and, you know, waiting for the muse to stand. If you do it, it's, it can be a fun thing for people to do. The only thing I quite often worry about is, and I, and I see it in, in a couple of guys in, in Berlin, is I'm, I'm helping the competitors here. They're going to come out there and get better deals with <laughs> writing stuff or telling stuff. I'm doing. <laughs> uh, no, but that's a uh, brilliant crit and hopefully we can get sort of a wee poem for you maybe in the next couple of months, whenever it falls for you, um, let us know. Sometimes I'll just suddenly come to you, so they're and, um, uh, Hopefully we can get it out. But honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Likewise, and, um, Sean, brilliant. Good to know you, can. and yeah, good to be in touch with everything you're doing, and strength to you. Keep going. Thank brilliant. you very much. Cheers, Chris. Thank See you. Ya.